Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1444 to 1457. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1444. The Dirtlings, written by Destroyer Matron Mark 8. Rox. Acting Primark Ront quirked an ear as he sipped his clef. Rox, Ambassador Vlen confirmed. You can't be serious. Rond watched as the alien fleet drifted over to join his forces on the viewscreen. The chamber of the Primarch had mostly been abandoned. Rond refused to run away. If this world was to end, the Rond would be ended with it. He would die as he had loved, on his feet and with a cup of clef in his hand. I'm quite serious, Rend assured him. They throw rocks. The acting Primarch squinted three of his eyes as he examined the fleet. Primitive designs. The human ships were barely capable of FTL, but they still used chemical propulsion to move within the system. They lacked the telltale shimmer of shielding systems, and Ron strongly suspected that they had nothing resembling inertial dampness or artificial gravity. Why uh, would you even ask for such a primitive species' help? We asked everyone for help, said Blen. The humans were the only ones who said yes. The more foolish they, Ron mused. The Kilgarn had warned the other species not to interfere. They had declared that any who aided the bronze people would be destroyed alongside them. The Kilgarn had given a similar warning when they invaded the Esserv. Ron sincerely wished his predecessor had heeded it. What do they hope to get out of this? They are a relatively new species. Bren slipped at his cliff, only achieved FTL within the last decade. They are very eager for an exchange of technologies. Of course they are, Ron snorted. Their idea of planetary defense is throwing rocks at people. As I said, they are fairly new, Bren pointed out, and their home system is devoid of any materials that we use to power most of our technologies. Basic elements only. Rond shifted two of his feet as he glared at the viewscreen. The Gulgan had arrived. I suppose that explains why such a primitive species hasn't been snapped up yet. He took another sip of his clef. They have nothing worth taking. Rond was beginning to see why the humans were willing to risk destruction. They desperately needed better materials. Worse, they were alone. Without strong allies and a significant upgrade in technology, they would be easy prey for whatever species bothered to snatch them up. The Fuelen Primarchy was one of the most advanced and powerful species in the galaxy, and they were everything the humans could hope for. Or at least, they had been, before Ron's predecessor pissed off the Kilgarn. The previous Primarch had killed himself once he realized the gravity of his mistake, and good riddance. The galaxy was a harsh place, and soft-hearted fools had no business being in charge. Still, a part of Rond wished the cowardly fool hadn't done it. If Rond hadn't had to take his place, he could be sipping clef in some faraway ship instead of waiting in his office to die. It's not as bad as all of that, said Blen. 
They may be lacking materials, but the dirtlings have made fine use of what they have. The acting primar quirked a dubious ear at his old friend. Dirtlings? Oh, uh, Ambassador Vlen ran a hand over his ears. Their home planet, they named it Dirt. For a brief moment, Ron seriously considered strangling his oldest friend. They named their home world Dirt. Dirt! The stain dripping from his voice. And they planned to assault the most powerful military force in the galactic history by throwing rocks at it. A powerful need to shut seized the acting Primarch. He resisted, sipping his cliff until he could regain his composure. He continued, Why did you even bring these people? No one else would come. Ron simmered silently as he watched the Kilgarn approach. The Kilgarn had always been powerful, but the Fwellen Primarchy had considered themselves their equals until a few years ago. The Kilgarn had changed that with the unveiling of their dreadships. The dreadship was massive, nearly seven times larger than Ron's homeworld. Such was its power that the millions of Kilgarn warships housed within were basically superfluous. Ron didn't know how long it had taken Kilgarn to construct the thing. Decades, at least. He didn't know that the combined might of the entire Fuelen Amada would barely be worth its notice. Not that he had the entire Fuelen Amada. Only a few million ships, a third of the force that he had left, had been stationed at their homeworld. The rest were guarding his people. Every ship in the Fwellen could scrape together had been stuffed with as many of his people as they could hold. Rond would die if he must. The Primarch would die if it must. But people must live on. Len could sense his despondence. I know how it sounds. The Dirtlings don't seem like much. But they are very good at throwing rocks. He saw Ron's expression and quickly continued. They have been doing it for their entire history. Ron didn't even bother to respond, choosing instead to have another cup of clef. Vlen kept talking. At first they used rocks to ward off predators. They learned to use sharp rocks to hunt. They learned to use part matter and sinew to throw rocks further. And they used rocks to fight each other and started wearing rocks to protect them from other rocks. Ron remained silent, sipping his clef. As the technology grew, they threw rocks harder and faster. Blen waved three of his hands around as he spoke, warming up to the subject. They started making better rocks to throw. Steel rocks, incendiary rocks, rocks that explode. When they achieved spaceflight, they found ways to throw rocks in a vacuum. Irritation poked its way through the acting Primarch's stoic silence. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to understand, the ambassador said. The Dirtlings love their rocks. They have a very special relationship. And they are quite good at throwing them. How nice for them. Ron glared back at the viewscreen. By the by, shouldn't there be more of them? I only see a few hundred Dirtlings approaching the dreadship. There are more, said the ambassador. That is just an expeditionary force. Most of the Dirtlings are in the asteroid belt. Ron quirked an ear. What for? Their leader said something about... Blen trailed off and seemed to wilt as little as he continued. 
ex- expanding their 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 the ro- the rock collection. Ron bobbled aside. Oh, of course he did. The dread ship reached the Fuelen Armada a minute later. The defenders fired up an opening salvo, unleashing a full might of the Primarchy in a torrent of plasma and antimatter. Well, the third of what he had left did, anyway. The dreadship seemed not to notice, continuing its slow, steady approach. Rond had seen this play out dozens of times. He had hoped his generals would be able to come up with a better strategy, but in his hearts he knew that it was not to be. Plasma slowed as it reached for the dreadship. Streams of antimatter reversed their course, and the Kogan had built the dreadship out of the densest materials that they could find. Its gravity was an order of magnitude greater than his home worlds. That gravity had been reversed. Plasma was just superheated matter, and it lacked the kinetic force necessary to overcome such a strong gravitational push. Antimatter was affected in much the same way. The Armada was forced to maneuver as their weapons were repelled back towards them. His ships would need to get much closer before they could so much as cinch the dreadnought shields. Pure energy weapons were unaffected, but lasers and other pure energy weapons would be useless until the shields were brought down. If they even could be. The dreadship waited for them. The moment the first of the Vron's fleet struggled through the gravity and struck the giant ship's shields, it fired back millions upon millions of weapons discharged, shredding the armada. Those few ships that survived turned back, having barely scratched the shields of the Kilgarn monstrosity. The doting feet had not moved with the armada. They were still intact. They were throwing rocks. The dirtlings don't need to get closer. Blen told him. Their rocks move quickly enough to overcome the gravity. Indeed, Ron sipped his cleft. They don't seem to be doing much, though. Stopping fast-moving objects was the most basic function of a shield. Ron doubted a normal warship would be bothered much by dirtling rocks, and the dreadship would be thousands of times more protected. For its part, the Kilgarn vessel took notice enough to send a few million lances of plasma at the humans, the humans had sufficient distance to move out of the way. A few seconds later, their ships began to melt and explode. Apparently, they had no protection against direct energy attacks. A few million lasers made short work of them. So much for the dirtlings. Rond shook his head. He walked over to his desk and lifted the glass over the console that he'd installed. On the console was a button that would trigger a device. The device would trigger a chain reaction that would cause the sun to go nova. Rond hoped the nova would happen fast enough to catch the Kilgarn and destroy the dreadship. But deep in his heart, he doubted that it would. Mate, old friend, Blen placed a hand on Rond's foot before he could press the button. Normally, such an impropriety would incense the acting Primarch, but Blen was his oldest friend, and it was the end of the world. He withdrew his hand and regarded the ambassador. Beals tilted in question. Now it's just an expeditionary false, the ambassador explained. The real attack starts now, he pointed at the view screen. Movement, very fast, from the asteroid belts. The dreadship was at the edge of the solar system. For the objects to approach so quickly, they must be moving at a fraction of the speed of light, a large fraction. 
maybe as high as 10%. Ron squinted at the screen, trying to make out the shape of the objects. They were rocks. Some of the rocks were only a few kilometers around. Several of them outsized these planet's moons, and a wild hope pulled the acting Primarch away from his console. He ambled closer to the view screen. I said it before, Ren said over the cliff. The Darklings are good at throwing rocks. The dreadship's reverse gravity could do little to soften the impact of an asteroid moving at such speeds. The first rock smashed against its shields, shattering fragments in all directions. Ron doubted a standard warship would have survived such a blow. More rocks struck at a fraction of a second later. Hundreds, perhaps thousands. For the first time, the Kilgarn dreadship might be in danger. The dreadship began to move, a sphere of larger than a world could not maneuver the way a normal ship could, but the dirtlings were throwing from far away. The Golgan would have to weather some hits, but once they were moving, Rond was sure that they could avoid the worst of it. The dreadship moved out of the way of the rocks. The rocks moved back into the way of the dreadship. How are they doing that? Rond wondered aloud. I told you, said Flynn. The Dirtlings have a special relationship. The answer, Rond realized, was so simple, he'd almost chuckled. The Dirtlings had attached engines to the rocks, powerful engines, no doubt, operated by remote control. The rocks continued to smash against the Dreadnought shields. The Dreadship began to launch its fleets. Rond's hearts sank. Even if the Dirtlings succeeded in destroying the Dreadship, the Kilgarn fleet would be the end of them all. If Rond had the entirety of his armada stood intact, he might have been able to make a fight of it, but his few remaining ships would easily be overwhelmed, and the human ships were basically helpless. A rock the size of a moon punched through the dreadship's shield. It plowed into a massive sphere. Such was the force of the impact that the entire dreadship rocked back. A hole the size of a continent bored through its frame, the shields flicked out. The Kilgarn fleet ceased its deployment. Several of the ships fell back down to the surface of the Kilgarn sphere. It took a moment for Ron to realize what had happened. He stared in wonder as more rocks crashed into and through the dreadnought. The impact of the giant rock had caused a plow of fluctuation. The Kilgarn had lost gravity control. Without it, the natural gravity of so much dense material had turned every Kilgarn on board into a puddle. Rond was willing to wager most of the warships hadn't been ready for a sudden shift, and their crews had been turned into smears as well. Only a few dozen ships managed to escape the dreadship, and several of those were dashed into pieces amidst the storm of the Dirtling's rocks. Rond went back to his console and opened up the communications link with the remains of the Armada. Attention, this is the Primarch. Jam all further communications and engage the remaining Kilgan. No survivors. He ended the transmission. Rond was reasonably sure the Kilgan hadn't yet reported on the dreadship's demise. He'd like to keep how it was done a secret if he could. The remainder of the Fwellen Armada moved in. There were only a few hundred of them left, but that was more than enough to deal with a few dozen Kilgon warships. The Dirtlings had stopped launching asteroids almost immediately after the destruction of the dreadship, but it was another forty minutes before the last rock hit the thing. By that time, 
The remaining Kilgans had been destroyed, and the Yamada had stopped jamming communications. What is the name of the lead deadling? Bronn asked Blen. Admiral Wells, Blen answered. The acting Primarch hailed the leader of the Dirtlings. Admiral Wells, this is acting Primarch Ron Valvoloy. My compliments. Together we have won a great victory. Her face appeared on the viewscreen, a symmetrical oval head. Only two eyes, pale, devoid of fur except for the mane on the top. Rond had met many species. Few were uglier than this. But none had filled Rond with greater joy. He wondered if the dirtling drank Clef. Perhaps he would invite her to share a cup. Acting Primarch Rond, the dirtling could not bow the fallen way, but she offered the closest gesture that she could approximate. Her voice was far too high and musical to speak Rond's language, but the consul's translator conveyed meaning well enough. Indeed we have. May it be a start of a beautiful friendship. I am sure that it will, Ron replied. He sipped his clef. The ambassador told me you and Rocks have a special relationship. The admiral's face scrunched up. The translator told Ron it meant the turtling was confused. Give me excuse. I don't understand. Hmm. The turtling were a new species. Maybe the translator hadn't worked out the kinks yet. Ron tried again. I heard that you were good at throwing rocks. Oh, the admiral's face unscrunched. Yes, she bared her teeth in an aggressive display. If throwing rocks doesn't solve your problem, you just need to throw bigger rocks. The translator informed Rond that the aggressive display meant that she was pleased. That's how we do things on planet dirt. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1445 Story number one. The translators written by hypothetical Shagoth. Hub, the ancient station, at the heart of negotiated space, with hundreds of vast space routes to the hearts of dozens of empires, unions, theocracies, and ravening hunt spaces. Its core was built by the translators, aeons ago, and various embassies. Trade missions and schools had built it out over time. Now, many of the most important movers and shakers were in the Grand Primary Theater, located near the busiest thoroughfares in the station, gathered to watch the docudrama performance about the translators sponsored by the Academy itself. The curtains rise, and the ambience hollow emitters fled, and the performers began their performance. Emitters in the audience's seats keep up a running commentary in the preferred language. Act 1 begins. The first act was largely narrated by a translator, standing at the corner of a stage, scene setting the deep history of the local space, recognizably simplified. Nobody is certain when the translators arrived in our part of space. Maybe they were always here listening, and just stepped out into the light when they were confident that they knew all the words. Even now, when their academy at Hub is open to all who can pass its admission tests, it is hard for us to trace all of our histories and cross-reference the exact point each race was greeted in its own tongue. 
For generations, the genealogies they have been from, the invisible lubricant that keeps the machines of commerce and diplomacy running. Something in their physiology, something in their cultures, something in their twist little brains that let them mimic and understand any other race's language. Given time, they saw this, a lack of growth and communication between stellar nations, and they saw what they always seek. Opportunity. An intermission giving the audience a chance at refreshments. Then they returned to the seats, tanks, lounges, and perches. Act two begins. The story pivots, the performers changing out, a cast of translators taking the stage. The story is told from the viewpoint of their race, discovering that there are others out there already. They panic when they realize that many of the peoples amongst the stars excelled at many of the things the translators had expected to. Finance, manufacture, the sciences, the arts, even crime and philosophy. The translator on stage cast about, despairing, until one noticed something. For all the communications blaring throughout space, none are addressed to the other races. The aliens apparently deem each other too alien to ever hope for true understanding. At most, there are occasional dead-drop trade sites, where goods are left and swapped in fair value in kind barters, never face to face. But the translators, in their curiosity and excitement, understood all of us. They left their home and carefully approached their neighbors, offering the chance at trade, growth, strategic defense for those of us who showed potential education. Many academics jumped at that last, though few succeeded. It appears those who managed to get into their academy all have some minor insanity, non-debilitating, but clear in the words if you speak with them long enough. A playful quirk of mind that treats language as a toy, a puzzle, rather than a tool that keeps their society together. The translators welcomed us and let their students in on their secrets. They, too, possess this madness. This calm causes a stir in the audience as the next intermission caught them by surprise. Again, there was a flow of bodies to the commensable's table, the refresher stations, and the merch shops. Though they seemed more intent on arriving back before the performance resumed this time. Act 3 begins. When not on duty, they even compete, Xeno students and translated scholars, in an ancient rite. Each submits ten written praises in the languages of their choice. This is then read aloud by the judges, or transmitted into interpretive dance, or spun in lighter than air webbing, in the style of the silent spinners. The judge audience then vote by two vocalizations, one indicating mirth, the other indicating distress. This is still according to the translator's ancient traditions. This competition plays out, some clearly favored by the scriptwriters, some favored by the circumstances, some clear underdogs. The performance continues, fascinating the audience. Translator mirth and distress washing through the theater as phrases are communicated. Recognition is granted to the three performers in the competition who got the most response. A decorative, gilded mask of a laughing translator. Another mask 
that shows the mirth on one side and distress or anger on the other. The final trophy showed a frustrated translator with one of its manipulators firmly pressed to the top of its base. All other participants in this performed competition received tokens of recognition. A ten plain on its face, which was also confirmed to be one of the old traditions. The competition ended, and the performers who had won reaped the rewards. They were chosen for graduation, and granted officers translating the languages that they had submitted for the competition. In this advent, the audience rippled with recognition. The three chosen were recognizable representations of some of the most notable diplomatic and trade translators in the past generation. Indeed, the performance wound down with montages of three winners' career exploits, poised and dignified in their translator uniforms. They were shown to be students, diligent and exacting in their duties, the pride of their species and their employers. The performance ended and the curtains rose, and the actors all came out to take a bow, and several variants with smaller meanings, before filing back off stage. One remained, spotlights forming to focus on him. He waits as the audience quiets and focuses on him, then gives the universal salute. Some recognize him, the senior administrator of the Translators Academy, generally accepted to be the repository of the most linguistic knowledge in the known universe. The administrator, Mulcallan, cleared his throat and spoke. Thank you, thank you for all attending this performance sponsored by the Academy. It has been our sincere pleasure to present pun or how play on the words in three different parts. The spotlights on him flicked off, and he hustled off the stage as what he said filtered through the audience. Then the combined groan of the audience shook dust from the rafters, and was punctuated by light rioting amongst some of the rowdier species. Story number two. Never run from a human in an urban environment, written by Loy Lair Diamond. Psycho watched as the blue alien woman lost her purse. The police officer failed horribly to keep up with the thief as he bolted with all his ill-gotten riches. Thigan knew that they wouldn't catch the thief as he bolted through the neon-lit nighttime of the city of grime and color. Thigan looked around and noticed a small ledge just within jumping height. He quickly scaled the wall and grabbed the ledge, then used it to scale the building. He ran to the opposite edge of the building and looked quickly until he clocked the thief not far from him. He made his way towards the still-fleeing thief, jumping between buildings and streetlights to catch the much faster alien. The Thakian stopped to catch his breath when he was sure that he was safe. Thyga perched just above him and shouted down, Excuse me, but I don't think that belongs to you. Leave it on the ground and walk away. The thief looked up in bewilderment, staring straight at the strange primate that was on a roof above him. He knew the human could not outpace him, so he bolted again. Saiga rolled his eyes as the alien took off and continued to free run after him, for blocks upon dirty blocks until settling into an alley highlighted in pink. The thief once again halted when he felt he was safe, and once again, Saiga sat on the ledge two stories above him and shouted back down, Sir, once again I must inform you that that purse does not belong to you. 
Once again, the thief looked up in confusion. How are you here again? How are you following me? Well, sir, by using the ancient art of parkour, you cannot outrun me, and I suggest you turn over the purse. Next time, you'll have to turn yourself into the authorities. I'm too fast for you, silly primate. You have to catch me again. The thief said in a wounded tone. Clearly, he was getting tired. But alas, once again, he ran. And once again, Thyga gave pursuit. For even more streets and blocks and alleys, the thief ran. Yet this round of pursuit was slower than the last two. So when the thief landed in a blue-lit alleyway and collapsed onto his knees as he sat to rest, and once again Tiger perched above him. Good sir, Tiger began, causing the thief to perform a half-hearted jump. This is your last chance to return the purse to me. I must urge you to surrender yourself, or stolen goods, or I must report you to the police. The thief stared at Tiger in disbelief as Tiger hung above him by holding onto a pole, before tossing the purse onto the ground and tiredly walking away. Thyga worked his way down the building and picked up the purse, before scaling back up the building and making his way back to the victim and handing the purse back to her. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1446 Story number one. The attempted assassination of a human dignitary at a galactic summit goes awry. Turns out, Many conventional toxins in an alien assassin's repertoire includes compounds like caffeine, theobromine, and capsaicin. Lethal to many species, but less than effective on humans. Written by that 2009 weird emo kid, who is currently selling a book and the link is in the description if you so choose to follow it. A deafening silence enveloped the conference room as soon as I stepped through the door. My two assistants rose behind me in terror, but I carried on like nothing was wrong, forcing them to follow my lead. Even the species that were telepathic fell quiet as I walked past them, immediately noticeable by their stiffening antennae and their wide-eyed stares. It seemed my would-be assassins had already gossiped about their victory. Most of these diplomats had written off humanity as an upstart race, we accomplished warp travel only fifty years prior, a blink of an eye for some of these cultures, and quickly developed close diplomatic relations with some of the bigger players in the galactic stage, to the point where humans were mostly free to roam any corner of the Milky Way without risking war. The fact that we stuck to our corner of the galaxy, despite being capable of expanding, had left some of these people skeptical of our motives. I didn't blame them really. History had shown that space-faring cultures rarely played nice with each other. It would be incredibly easy for humans to dismantle entire empires with sleeper agents due to how widespread we were becoming. How scientists, artists, and bounty hunters gained notoriety through honest use of their skills, which meant several star systems already relied on us to function smoothly. Unfortunately, some people couldn't believe a species was that content with mere exploration, not without being secretly evil. These aliens were too used to their own technological advancements to see it from our perspective. Now that human aging had been mitigated and food was no longer scarce, most of us just wanted to do our own thing and hopefully learn something valuable along the way. 
There was plenty of room for everyone in the galaxy. That was our biggest epiphany when we first left our solar system. Furthermore, the whole universe waited for us beyond the galactic rumor. Squabbling over territory just felt silly after getting the spa. I knew most people wouldn't buy that, though. Some of our allies were even starting to doubt our intentions. My job at this summit was to make sure that our current treaties held true. Anything else would be a bonus. Everyone expected me to sit next to the Trostyang, one of the humanity's first friends. They may have been adequate in a normal scenario, but not after an assassination attempt. Looking for sympathy from our allies would make us seem weak, almost like we needed an older species to protect us. That wasn't the message I wanted to send. In order to maintain our standing, proactive measures had to be taken, which is why I chose to sit between the bullies and the cowards, the two groups that had just tried to kill me. Ambassador Clark, gurgled the bully representative, twitching her tentacles. How are you feeling? Great, I smiled, making myself comfortable. Something wrong? You, you look nervous. Do I? The bully shifted in her seat. The retinue around her hadn't moved an inch since I sat down. Maybe it looks that way to a human, but I couldn't be more calm. Of course, sir. Sorry for assuming. I could have sworn you looked like a lot more relaxed during our meal. But I guess that's just my silly monkey brain acting up. We have a lot to learn from each other, don't we? Yes, muttered the bully. Your biology astounds me. I'm sure it does. If you're ever up for another dinner, just let me know. Your delicacies were scrumptious, especially that drink you gave me. I... I can't take credit for all of that. Uli glanced at the Kuwards ambassador. Our friend here promised to bring the best ingredients that he could find. The Kuward replied in gelatinous body with an uncomfortable noise, making him as small as possible. I... I tried my best. Nobody said otherwise, I said. Say, where did you find those beans? I haven't found good ones in years. Um, the good struggled to answer. Well, yes, the bully, hoping to change the subject. Y you mean you tried it before? Of course, we call it coffee where I'm from. Humans often fraternize over a cup of it, especially after a meal. Don't your people do it too? The two ambassadors stayed quiet, sharing a quick glance. Uh, wait a minute. I scratched my chin. You mean to tell me that isn't the case? No. The coward, sweating droplets of purple ooze. We, we, we definitely use it a lot. But it is really expensive, added the bully, glaring at her ally. I found it is not worth the cost. As a coffee junkie, I have to disagree. We have it available on our replicators, but nothing beats the taste of freshly ground, organically grown beans. Right, said the coward. Now people have selectively bred the plants for centuries. We've found many applications for it. Fascinating. I'd love to see your farms. Perhaps we could share notes. Heck, there's a lot of demand for it in our world, if you're interested in discussing a trade deal. The bully frowned. The that won't be possible, said the coward, intimidated. He actually looked tempted for a second. We're very secretive when it comes to our growing operations. Sorry. What a shame. Yes, the bully said. A shame. 
I'm surprised you love it that much. I'm, uh, can't handle it. And I can see how that might be the case. Some humans aren't very good at tolerating it, but most find the buzz it is usually worth it. Then again, that's our lot in life. We embrace discomfort to get what we want. Some species value the opposite, so I suppose it would be easy to never try anything difficult when they don't have to. Now that I think about it, the same applies to our friendships. I started laughing. <laughs> we often tolerate the most crap from those we love. I gave them both a dead-eyed stare. Otherwise, why put up with it? The Kuwad ambassador shrieked and rolled away in a ball, grabbing the attention of everyone else in the conference room. The Bu'uli tensed up, unable to speak. She seemed like she wanted to do the same as her ally, but couldn't afford to look weak in front of this many people. I didn't have to say anything else. My threat had been clear. The rest of the summit went smoothly from then on. Our allies saw that humanity wouldn't back down from a challenge, but that we also wouldn't be savages about it. That earned us a lot more respect going forward. As I was leaving the conference room, one of my assistants went on to ask me why I dealt with them so kindly. If we had reported them instead, they would have been in clear violation of several treaties. Something that would have crippled them with sanctions and tariffs. I shrugged off their concern, saying, Sure, we could have messed with them uh, even more. But something tells me they wouldn't have learned their lesson otherwise. Remember, cooperation and endurance got humanity this far. Show them that the rising tide lifts all boats, and they'll discover it can drown them if they don't get on board. Besides, I chuckled, I am pretty grateful. Do you know how hard it is to find good coffee around here? End of story. Story number two. Pointy Sticks, written by British Tea Company. Upon our planet, there was a special thing that had always ensured no invader could ever prevail. At the center of our greatest world laid nature's greatest defiance to the evils of technology, the great tree of life, where all things living would be blessed by its presence. The tree, as holy and as sacred as it was, was not what outsiders perceived as valuable. Nay, as typical of the greedy imperialists that exist within the universe, they were always here for the rocks in our earth. Rocks. Shiny metals which they use to build the mechanical monstrosities or fuel their appetite to avarice. For countless ages, invaders had tried and failed. Countless have tried to land their armies on our planet, only to have their computers and machines fail them as the tree rejected all things inorganic. Their ships crashed and fell onto our planet, where lava flow would inevitably wash away metal, and where earthquakes would swallow the inorganic. Many have tried to destroy the tree from afar, using their weapons which would rain fire from the sky. Never to be marred by technology's filthy claws, the tree made weapons fail and shells explode harmlessly. Grunt old eons, this was how it had been. This is how it would be. Even the most tenacious of all warlords soon abandoned efforts to conquer our world. Never would we fall to the machines that descend from the sky. Always we were to live our lives in close harmony with nature's wonders and boons. 
Eventually, the Terrans came. Though we seldom communicated with those infected with technology struck, we had known their reputation. Fearsome conquerors from the Milky Way galaxy, reputed to have butchered gods and extinguished stars. Like the rest of those who came to our world, they would meet much obstacles. Their invasion fleets fell to their deaths as the tree denied their entrance. Their bombardments had no effects as the tree would never allow machines to corrupt our world. The Terran generals fumed. The Terran lords raged. The Terrans themselves even humbled by our ability. But if the legends of Terran creativity and determination were ever to be vindicated, it would be the day when our planet fell. Though we were unable to observe the works of the Terrans, we finally knew one day about this silence. From the depths of space, the corpse of a space whale fell from the sky. The space whales were massive creatures, sometimes miles in size. They wandered the astral oceans and swam the cosmic waves. Their blubber was capable of surviving off most baleful and mechanical weapons, let alone simply entry into another planet. With means still unknown to us, the Terrans had acquired the corpse of a space whale, unmarred by wounds, and sent it drifting into our world. When the corpse hit our planet, millions of invaders poured out, the thick skin of the whale having shielded them from the impact. Draped only in furs and armed with nothing more than sharpened sticks, the Terrans came to our planet. Massive, imposing, and remorseless savages in their conquest. There was little resistance that was mounted. The great tree of life, the guardian which had shielded us from the horrors of these corrupted by the unnatural world, served as a bonfire over the corpse of millions of my people. The invasion fleet followed. The Terrans unleashed the full might of their military upon our planet. In less than a year, our people were no more. The following year... The Darrens had culled any species they had deemed unworthy. Our planet was desecrated, slowly transformed into a facsimile of every other Terran colony. It is here that I speak to you about the Terrans. Their history had them spearing megafauna to death. They're not the fools who remained dependent on air conditioning of fancy spaceships for society. They're as physically apt and wily as ever. And that is what makes them so unquestionably dangerous. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1447. Story number one. Infectious medicine written by Poseidon underscore underscore underscore. Dirk on side. These past few centuries have been run. Sure. But the start of this gig had been like any other. Sign up to reap the souls of the sentient species when these conditions are met that were set forth when they were created until the species goes extinct. It was a pretty common career, and at first he thought he got lucky. Most gigs only lasted a few million years. It was rare for sentient species to make it civilization. Once upon a time, he was even excited. He could move up in the world with how many souls he had harvested. The worst part was that all the other reapers laughed at him. 
They saw his statistics and assumed he was so shitty at his job that it would be any day now before he got sacked. Then they'd be able to take over a species that was already in the space age and reap the benefits for themselves. Well, they could have it. Durkon knew that he was good at his job. It was why he had been chosen. But this species was infuriating. He'd see the human's heart had stopped and showed up to reap the soul, and then it got restarted. The worst was in the same human's heart stopped, the other human started it again, but then stopped again, so he couldn't just leave. But the damned human wouldn't actually die, and he couldn't harvest the soul. His numbers were so abysmal, he knew that he'd never be able to find work once the gift was up. He didn't even want to know what his ratio of deaths to harvest was anymore. Massive amounts of blood loss. They'd pump more blood in from someone else. Organ failure. Implant a new one. About to fall to death from a height that would normally kill them. Giant pieces of cloth that slowed them down. All their skin burned off. <laughs> Just cover it up, transplant some more, and grow it back. Deadly infection. Antibiotics. Humans! were the worst. And what a horrible client. It was like they were trying to make his job as awful as possible. He knew that it was just starting to. They'd find other planets soon and their population would explode because although they didn't breed too fast compared to other species he'd reaped, they just didn't die. For a while now, he'd had hellish work, but at least it was constant. Soon, it'd get worse by the day. Miserable little feckers. He wished that he could just throw a meteor at their planet before they could get someone off of it so they could just move on to something else. Oh, that's a warp drive. Too late now then. Durkin called it a day and went home. This was not something he wanted to deal with right now. Durkin was on busier than ever, showing up to the humans on the verge of death and then they just didn't die stuck in this hellish contract, unable to leave until hopefully the species got genocided by one of their neighbors for being so insufferable. Hey! Durkin looked up. It was Boleth, the guy in charge of the Falconians. He'd been doing it forever, and everyone agreed that he'd had the best job. Durkin didn't think Boleth had ever even looked at him before, let alone spoken. What was a bigwig like him doing here? Boleth, it's an honor to speak to you. Uh, what has brought you here? Durkin hated speaking so formally, but unless he really wanted to be chewed out, it was better to be respectful. No matter how much he envied Boleth for having the perfect fecking species to for basically the rest of his career. You damn well know why I'm here. You suck at your job. You suck at your job so much that it is affecting me. You know how many deaths I've shown up for in the past week that didn't actually die. I was sure I'd get a nice bonus once the Falconians made first contact with your little blackwater shell, since the diseases would decimate them. Instead, none of the first contact team have died. Sure, they got sick, but the humans just made them eat something. I couldn't do a damn thing. I've seen your numbers, but how the feck is it infectious? I've had this nice, cushy gig for millions of years, and all of a sudden your species shows up and fucks it all up. How did you let their population get to 15 billion on their home planet alone? How lazy are you? 
Do you show up, take a nap, and then clock out for the day? What the feck are you doing? Durkin lost it. Completely ape crap. It was frowned upon, simply to raise your voice to a superior. Durkin just started beating the crap out of him. No words, just pure, unadulterated violence. Boleth was in a daze as Durkin's fists continually made contact with his face. Before he knew it, Durkin was being pulled off of Boleth by other reapers who happened to be in the area. You call me lazy! Lazy! I've shown up to more deaths in the past week than you have in the past hundred thousand years! Do you have any idea what the species is like? They just don't die. All of you feckers see is the goddamn ratio. I know how bad it is. It's my ratio. Can't even quit because I signed on for the full lifespan. Species. It's driving me insane. I haven't even gone home in the past week because they found a bunch of habitable planets and suicidally throwing themselves at them but still not dying. You called me lazy again, and I'll fucking kill you, you goddamn prick. I don't care how powerful you are, and I don't give a crap about the consequences. Fuck you, and fuck your species. I hope this crap is infectious so that you can feel a fraction of the pain that I've dealt with. Just wait until the humans teach them how to do organ transplant. You won't sleep for a month. Durkin continued to rave incessantly, even as other reapers tried to calm him down. He'd snapped. Durkin got angrier and angrier until he eventually just passed out while Boleth was left to recover. The other reapers looked at each other with confusion. What the hell is medicine? I don't know. I sure hope none of my species ever figure it out. End the story. Tales from Outer Space 1448 Story number one, Q-Ships, written by Provisional Rebel. The captain almost had to laugh as he watched the convoy. The Federation was either grossly desperate, or they were really just showing the flag rather than planning to support the Hasarians. Tactical, designate Jaffari frigate and freighter as targets one and two. We'll clean up the rest of the space trash when we are done with the real battle. Get us a target lock, passive sensors only. His eyes skimmed over the strange sensor readings from a number of human ships. At least, he assumed that they were all human now. They were second-hand at best, and looked like some of them who had several generations out of date, despite their, uh, interesting modifications. He shook his head in disgust. The humans were new to the Federation, but had become a disgraceful reminder to never let the lesser species get their hands on anything even marginally useful. Hell, it didn't even have to be useful for a human to trade, barter, and beg for it. Do we have our lock? Yes, sir. Very well. Byron will. Firing. Contact in three, two, one. Con- Uh, sir. It's a sensor ghost. The shots went straight through at the targets. The ship shuddered, and the world tore into chaos around him. His mind raced. There must have been a frigate running stealth in the wake of the convoy that deployed the decoy drones. That was far too fast a reaction time. Damage report. Tactical. Find us a target. No new contact, sir. The shot originated from within the convoy. Damage control teams report we have a hull breach in cargo bays. We didn't hit anything vital, but whatever it was went straight through our armor. Sir, we have target. Uh, one of the freighters is running hot. 
She fired some of the mass drivers at us. Looks like she's charging for another shot. Designate target one. Roll to the forward shield arc and fire weapons once you have a lock. The captain sat back in his chair, his hand shaking as he swept over his console to take in the new information. That ship was... His heart rose in his chest as he looked at the sensor readings. Home! Initiate emergency jump! The compensators hummed around them as they tried to manage the strain. The world went blank, and then came crashing back into the sensors as they returned real space a light second away from the convoy. Roll forward shield arc to likely pursuit points. Deploy sensor drones towards those ships. Designate all targets 1 through 12. Yes, sir. Enemy contacts have entered into standard Federation formation. He furrowed his brow, tapping his talons on his armrest. Analysis of formation, sir, that's, sir. Computer has designated this as a carrier escort formation. This must be new contacts. Priority target found. The central freighter is launching fighters. The captain sat dumbstruck for a moment, his eyes glued to the projection in front of him. Sure enough, at least two fighter squadrons had poured from the central ship. The ship rocked a moment later and dragged him back to reality. Another mass driver shot had splashed into the forward shield from a different ship. The shield wasn't enough to stop the rounds, but it would save them from being caught out so long as the armor held. Helm, these time calls to the nearest jump lane, divert power to point defense weapons. But he knew the odds as he watched their distance close. No ship could outrun a fighter, and it seemed the humans had spared no expense on something, at least. Tactical, set and deploy our atomics to burst at maximum safe distance on proximity in likely pursuit trajectories. The tactical officer glanced to him for only a moment before nodding. Yes, sir. We will deploy in 15 seconds. Three, two, one. Atomics away. He watched as the starfighters closed the distance on the sensor display. Three disappeared in a burst of atomics, not nearly enough as he watched the missiles free themselves and burn towards his ship. Closed his eyes right before the explosion that never came. Slowly, he opened his eyes to the perfect darkness around him. This was not the afterlife he had thought of. But then he heard the breathing around him. Captain, I don't think anything hit us. Power has gone out. We're dead in the void. I can see that, Ensign. He felt his hand around for a moment, and then suddenly the emergency lights came alive around him. He squinted at a moment. Engineering is alive, at least. Nensen, run! Go take their brr! Slowly, another sound ground through the ship around them. He considered it a moment before the dawning horror rose in his stomach. The forward airlock. Arm yourselves! Borders! End of story. Story number two. A strategy game written by Feather Fallen. The guards saluted as I entered, great doors spreading to allow my passage. Humans were rare in the Federation's ranks, but there were a few of us. For the most part, we were satisfied to remain separate, providing the requisite military support as an auxiliary force instead of integrating into their units. For some, there wasn't an option. But then... The council was seated. It was rare for them to assemble, and rarer still for them to call for an individual. Either I was in for a lot of trouble, or we all were. Captain, I stepped forwards and nodded my head as the council representative addressed me. 
How fared your mission? I frowned at the odd line of questioning. I'd arrived, which meant that the Triberian had. A shipping job was typically complete on arrival. Shrugging, I answered honestly. It was a success. The crew is unloading now. Good. The representative smiled and stepped back to rejoin his place in the council. From the back, I heard the leader himself speak for the first time. General ID has fallen. I froze. That was definitely not good news. I see. That still didn't explain why I was here. We understand that it's a different branch, but our ground forces need a leader. The representative stepped forward again. We wanted to offer you the role. I hesitated. I wasn't expecting this at all, and my first instinct was outright refusal. But the longer I thought about it, the fewer qualms I had. Space combat required greater autonomy and command knew that, allowing us greater flexibility. I'd initially joined the Navy to avoid the Federation's suicidally ill-led ground forces, but if I was the general, it wasn't my area of expertise, however. And I still had a question. Why a cross-promotion? The council shared a look, some nodding sagely at the question, and three spoke in turn. How other choices are inexperienced. They've been trained, but are far too inflexible for this offensive. We've been keeping tabs on you. We've seen how hard you've worked for it. How you've run tactical simulations into the late hours even during your free time. The officers remaining, you are the most qualified to lead us. They went silent again, waiting for my reaction. Very well, I accept. The head of the council smiled. Congratulations on your promotion, General. And Alda stepped forwards, putting a new rank onto my uniform. I suppose this will come with the ability to appoint my second in command, then? They nodded. It does. What would you have us do? First things first, I want every map of the situation we have. The council nodded, and a soldier stepped forwards with a data pad. And your second? Bring me the Tiberian's first engineer. There was some murmuring at that. I was going to promote an engineer, someone without military experience. My first move was an act of favoritism. I wasn't too worried, though. They couldn't afford to second-guess my very first decision. Evidently, I was right, as I soon dispatched messengers to retrieve him from the ship. In the meantime, I began to appraise the situation. For the most part, our forces were evenly matched. The enemy were better entrenched. But the shipment of weapons, my crew, the shipment brought by the Tiberian, I corrected myself, was enough to tip the logistical game in our favor. The outcome was going to come down to what we did with it. Before long, the Federation's newest tactician was brought before us. Knowing that he'd been kept in the dark, I pinned the new rank to the front of his engineering uniform before speaking. We've been playing together since long before we got involved in any of this. And in all these years... I've only ever beaten you once. He looked at me, confused in his eyes. What? He paused, stumbling to find his wording. What do you want me to do? I slid the data pad over with a smirk. I want you to help me command and conquer. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1449. Story number one. We are already friends. Written by Rex Mori. 
The first alien we contacted face-to-face -face was, to be completely honest, ugly as sin. Softly, doughy skin made of soft edges and fur instead of scales and spikes. Deep-set eyes and squashed face. The damn thing didn't even have a tail for tense, rule, or inflection, or chromatophores for tone, or deficit made up of the mechanical armatures and screens set into the seat of the creature. I adhered to the formalities as befitted my station, and greeted the thing with my tail raised in respect, thrill and attention one vermilion. Nobleman Karahur greets you. Are you most comfortable having this conversation in the low or the ecumenical tongue? It was a small slight against the thing, but one I thought I could get away with. It wasn't until the creature responded in perfect high that I was put on the back foot. Nobleman, I is demanded for matters of state in the formalities, is it not? I wouldn't want to start us off with a disrespect towards you. Unfortunately, my title does not translate, so you would have to call me Tutor. Tutor Rukka is close enough to my name. The darkness of his vermilion told me he knew that I'd been trying to get a position of power over him. But his usage of high without permission meant that he was equal in having both breached the formalities. So, what is it that you want, tutor? A touch of pinkly, I might admit, but I was not used to being caught off guard. I am here to negotiate our integration into the galactic community at large. Surely, such an effort on your part requires an equivalent effort on ours. What do you need? Labor? Goods? Food? What could we possibly give you to warrant such an uplifting? The tutor let loose a rapid belt of noise, similar to a vehicle failing to start. It's truly no problem. This will be one of the easiest jobs that we'll have done in a long time. You already know what language is, after all. Had my quizzical tail quirk, he elaborated. Most species do not have the idea that anything could communicate in any way other than the way they do. You have languages, though. And more than most, when we reached the stars, we found our nearest neighbors fighting between each other because they couldn't understand each other. One would attempt to give a gesture of peace by unloading their weapons into empty space, and the other would see that as a threat. He leaned forward and said in the growing azure, But their languages were so similar they both used nearly identical grammar structures. They just failed to think that the other wouldn't speak their language. So we helped them connect. I do not see why that would make us easier to introduce to the galaxy, I said in growing purple. The tutor seemed to get much more excited than I was comfortable with, particularly in this temperature. Well, it's mostly done, after all. The language-to-language -language protocols are already finished. All of your language have similar structure to one of ours, so it was just simpler transfer of terms. In addition to your body language and culture is a codified with formalities, so we didn't need to make a guide to it from scratch. Really, this is all fairly rote stuff. His beige tint of boredom aggravated me, and so in a burgundy tone I asked him, You never told me what your species gets out of this. It's all seeming too good to be true. Well, for one, we don't have to go to war. He sprawled flat unsettingly. For another, there is no way that you can hide anything from us. Encryption is another form of language, after all, and we're very good at languages. We have to be, 
We have over 6,000. We already know all of your secrets. All of your classical classes scientific findings. Your electromagnetic spectrographic equipment is rudimentary, but would be useful. We would know the second that you even thought of getting aggressive towards us. You are already an ally to us. You just don't know it yet. And allies help each other. His will was fully extended and a deep assure. So this is a gift we bring you into the galactic community free of charge. You've already paid after all. Transcription of the account of the first meet of nobleman Kaharaha of the Kaharaha Hegemony and translator Rick Duggins of the United Human Planets. End of story. Story number two. Play with Fire, written by Mercury the Dealer. The first thing that any sapient species learns is to master fire. If you master fire, you can cook the meat of your prey, scare away predators, burn forests to make way for pastures and villages. But fire is also a weapon. A wooden hut is no match to the hungry flame of a torch. Walls and towers become the ovens that cook any unlucky enough to be inside. The thirst of Prometheus kills more than any spear. Eventually, your control of fire will be so great that you will learn to melt metal and forge tools for mining, farming, and, most importantly, killing. The fire brings copper spear, the bronze sword, the iron musket, and eventually the hyper-alloy laser gatlings of the modern day. The fire goes down from a weapon to a tool that makes weapons. That is how all sapiens develop. Except for one. The humans were not very interesting when we found them. The tech was average. Their railguns were good, but not revolutionary. And their biology was impressive. But their low birth rate meant that they would be bodyguards for the wealthy instead of replacing the soldiers as common troops. But then something interesting happened, or rather, something didn't happen. No pirates raided the humans. It was an abnormality. Almost every sapient species, as soon as they are introduced, immediately ask for help in dealing with the pirates that flood their territory, expecting unprepared prey. The humans didn't ask for help. If anything, they seemed unaware that there were even pirates entering their territory. News spread among the scum of the galaxy that anyone who boarded a human ship never came back. These rumors led to many courageous young men trying to be the one who stole a human ship, and even more rumors when none of them came back. Traders caught on that humans seemed impervious to piracy and bought their ships. Said ships were promptly stolen by pirates, thus proving that the humans themselves were the reason that no one came back. Soon, the humans were the haulers of the galaxy. The human nations of the United Nations of Terror to the Empire of the Southern Cross all signed an unofficial treaty. Don't say a word as to how they keep away pirates. Don't take prisoners and monopolize the hell out of the transport industry. It went well for the first few years. Humans got rich, their companies got influence, and their haulers got to spend an awful lot of time drunk on alien worlds. Then, the Confederacy declared war on the Empire of the Southern over some colonies. With the Imperial troops came the 
Unidedes Iberius de Chama, and tales of those who fought them. And the tales were simple. Fire. Modern armor has always been made of flexible and programmable material that detects heat and fully hardens after a certain limit is achieved. It is a great method for dealing with laser fire, since lasers work by focusing heat in a specific point and burning everything attached to said point. The UIC didn't use lasers, though. They used something called Promethean fire as their fuel for their lungs at fogo. The chemical was a lot like ancient napalm, but the main exception being that it burned much harder. Hard enough that it triggered the hardened command of the enemy's armor, and since the fire spread through most of the body, the entire system would lock, thus preventing them from fighting back. The process was simple. Get to where the enemy is, flood them with absolute gigantic amount of Promethean fire, and either capture or execute the now frozen enemies. That is how humans captured pirates. They just set them ablaze and launched them into the vacuum. The Confederates who tried to fight back, of course, generals ordered their troops to set higher and higher hardening temperatures, which the humans responded to by creating even hotter versions of Prometheum. Then, the humans lowered the temperature of their lasers and went on a full offensive against the Confederacy. When the Imperial troops met the enemy, their lasers were just below the temperature that triggered a full hardening of the armor. In two weeks, the Confederacy signed a Treaty of Surrender. The treaty was filed with reparations, promises of demilitarization. The Empire got the title of protector of all humans in the Confederacy, which was basically them giving themselves the right to declare war at will under the pretense of protecting their kind. Boring things. But most importantly, it gave the rest of the galaxy a clear message. Don't invade our borders. Play with fire and you'll get... Burned. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1450. Story number one. A routine weapons inspection written by Fox Corp. Life as a weapons inspector is difficult. From the countless deaths under strange circumstances, political pressure, bribes, and death threats, it is no surprise that of all the jobs in the galaxy, being an inspector is among the highest paying and most dangerous. Yet, to Ragnar Thronton, it was the most enthralling occupation available. For 200 years, he has been a weapons inspector for the Galactic Compact. Not only does he enjoy the work, but also has connections it brings him. Throughout his career, he has diligently watched the many species of the galaxy and ensured compliance with the law. Today, the old inspector would be visiting a species whose name is infamous amongst the weapons inspectors across the galaxy. The humans. These humans were not infamous for all suspect deaths, bribery, corruption, or danger, but the incredible ability to create incomprehensibly potent superweapons not covered by galactic law. Every year, their scientists and engineers come up with mind-bogglingly insane blueprints and prototypes for weapons that could annihilate entire star clusters. Ragnar was ready for a very long day. As he got out of bed, he stretched his arms, walked to his bathroom, took a shower, cleaned his mandibles, and put on his ceremonious clothes. 
His species, the Retikar, had very similar physiology to humans. Due to this, it was more often than not his duty to inspect human shipyards and battle fleets. Today, however, he expected no conflict. He was to inspect the shipyards of the Terran government in orbit around Earth. This one shipyard produced more galactic laws than most governments ever would. With every inspection, a new superweapon would be found nestled in a loophole more complicated than the last. Ragnar took one last inventory of his belongings, then exited his hotel room, took an elevator to the lobby, exited the building, and entered a black car waiting for him outside. The car took him to Cape Canaveral Space Elevator, where he boarded Elevator 1A and began his 10-minute journey to space. From there, the shuttle took him directly to the massive station where his day's work lay. Welcome back, Ragnar. Always nice to see you, though I'm afraid your visit will be unnecessary, said the Fleet Admiral Green with the smirk. The station no longer manufactures any weapons. Oh, come on, Green. For 120 years I've known you. You've never stopped making guns. Take me to the testing grounds. We don't make weapons anymore, so there is no testing grounds. But we do have restaurants, and, uh, we do make a mean burger. Maybe after you show me whatever it is you are making, replied Ragnar with a smile. After all, if they aren't weapons, you don't mind me taking a look. Certainly. Follow me. The Admiral turned and began to walk down the large corridor to the testing room. If I may ask, Admiral, what exactly are you making here? Green hesitated for a moment, obviously trying to remember the exact terminology used by his engineers before replying. Singularity waste heat disposers. As of last week, all human ships now operate on the Kugel Blitz energy generators. Singularity? As in black hole? Yes, uh, but artificially, completely harmless, so long as you don't touch it. Green began to chuckle at his statement, seemingly amusing himself with his clear disregard for safety. I do not find that funny. Touching a black hole would result in a horribly painful death. The Admiral didn't seem to care about Ragnar pointing out the inherent danger, only chuckling harder before refinely regaining composure. The two walked in silence for multiple minutes before finally reaching a large blast door. The Admiral placed his hand on the scanner, to which the door began to whine and open. After you, Green said. As Ragnar walked through the door, he was struck by the absolute size of the complex. It was well over ten miles long and four miles wide. All throughout the complex, engineers worked on massive devices that looked similar to the magnetic accelerators common on human ships. I thought you weren't making weapons anymore. We aren't. Those are a, uh, a singularity waste heat disposers, as I told you earlier. Why do they look like your spinal-bound weapons, then? Because we need them to get the heat out of the singularity containment field quickly. How quickly? About 99% of the speed of light. These babies heat up quickly, and we can't have that. What? 99%? Yes. How is that not a weapon? Because it isn't designed as one. How destructive is it? I'll show you. Hey, Jenkins, get a test ready, and lower the radiation shielding. A man on the control platform gave the Admiral a thumbs up, and pressed a couple buttons on his station. All personnel leave work floor, or live testing commencing soon. The thousands of workers along the floor began to run away from the area, each one entering a separate compartment shielded by a meter of lead. A massive blast door began to close from in front of Ragnar and Green, 
and the two of them were handed protective goggles by a young scientist. After 30 seconds, the blast door fully closed, and the two of them moved to a small viewing port in the door. Jenkins, drop the, uh, heat absorber, then start it up. Yes, sir. Morning lights began to flash as a standard military cruiser was lowered in front of the heat disposer. Once it was fully lowered, the Admiral got giddy, a look of anticipation on his face, before yelling, Do it! An absurdly bright beam of energy shot out of the magnetic accelerator. It smashed into the fully operational shield of the cruiser. Within a fraction of a second, the shield shattered and the beam continued on its journey. It ripped through the armor plating of the cruiser. A horrific screeching noise was heard. And within half a second, the beam pierced straight through the other side of the cruiser. It smashed into the shield protecting the rest of the station. And it began to flicker. Shut it down, screamed the Admiral before the beam began to weaken and eventually dissipate. Ragdoll was horrified. Green, what the hell was that? A heat disposer. It just gutted a military cruiser from bow to stern, then went out the other side and just about destroyed the whole station, all in less than a second. Did it? Yes. Uh, I must have blinked, Green yawned. Anyways, we've already outfitted all of our ships with this revolutionary new energy device. I'll make sure to tell you our boys in uniform to be careful of the exhaust port. You what? End of story. Story number two. Demons Walk Beside Them. Written by Dragonson04. The human homeworld was just as harsh as ours. So it was not a threat to us as it would be to others in the galaxy. Death worlders were few and far between, and those of us who evolved in such worlds and managed to actually take to the stars were even rarer. We, the Zalea, and the humans, and the Annex were the only human Deathworld species to actually leave our home planet. The humans themselves were no stronger or faster or tougher than we were. In spite of our nearly opposite natures, with them being mammals and us being reptiles, we were nearly perfectly evenly matched in all fields. Not only their tolerance for cold surpassed us, and our natural camouflage surpassed their naked eyes. So, of course, they focused their defensive lines in cold places when we attacked them. All defenders were equipped with technology that could see through our comedian skin, as they put it. And armed with cobbled-together cold guns based on safety device they developed to fight rampant ignition events, we practically walked over the rest of the planet, taking what we wanted when we wanted and finding little resistance outside of populated areas. It was only a few local sun cycles into our invasion that we first saw their demons. Or rather, their demons saw us. They were also creatures that had evolved from the same death world as humans. I honestly don't know how they tamed them and their savage nature and incredible natural abilities. They were faster and stronger and nearly perfectly adapted to finding us with near incredible sense of smell and heightened sense of hearing. So many kinds of demons, from impossibly small, brought about by centuries of selective breeding, to things that were the size that humans could almost ride them into battle. All breeds were bad, but their shepherd and their blood types were the worst. And when those two worked together, we 
had no chance at all. Several other things we learned to fear was a human saying one of several things to the demon that they were controlling. Seek! Track! Find! Sikkim! Most horrifying of all, who's a good boy? Was what we heard on now unmanned communication equipment. They praised their demons. They reward their savagery with facsimiles of human bones, perhaps to placate their demonic natures. A ritual sacrifice to please their need for bone and flesh and blood. Those words were always caught on communication channels before the unit, though sometimes an entire garrison was wiped out, or immediately after, in the case of the praise. I write this as a warning to my people. Humans are formidable by themselves, but their demons are what you should fear. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1451. Story number one. Pest Control, written by Loy Lair Diamond. The small rodent skidded across the cold, sharp grates in the air duct above the corridor, careful to not disturb the sleeping goats and will-o'-wisps that hung in the internal sleep invisibly below. It scurried towards the messel where bigger, scarier things feasted. The sentience, being aboard this ship, would surely kill the Dardakan rodent as soon as they saw it. They had already made several attempts on its life, along with other small vermin amongst the passengers. From the humble Farky to the clever rat, these ships made great homes for the small pests intelligence society had tried so hard to eliminate. Joshua looked up as he heard the small creature. It wasn't careful enough. He'd heard about enough of the damned thing. He and his crewmates had tried everything from rat poison to the Carcadian method of using their gaseous natural fruits to ward them out of the ship. He should have known that the rats would steal the odorous things and hoist it into the air vents. The stench was still faintly in his uniform. That's when he realized how he could finally beat his hated rivals. These tiny animals would be no match for another slightly less tiny animal from Earth. Joshua made his way to the captain's office, where he found the time between performing Sabaton in Mess Hall, much to the human's delight and the Adian's bewilderment, and cleaning the floors of the bridge. He entered the surprisingly bare-bones office, decorated with nothing but a single bland periodic table. The captain, a round yet fit Carthidian man named Cathibiel, sat in a deep concentration over calculating the exact position of their target planet. Not that he needed to, as their AI did that for him. Kith practically jumped into hyperspace when Joshua snatched his attention like a thief, rubbing a purse from a paper on the captain's desk. Dearerenthi, Joshua, you scared me to heavens. What is it? The rotundal man caught his breath as he fixed his tired gaze on Joshua. Sir, I think I have a solution to our rodent problem. He produced a small disc from his jacket and placed it in front of Kith. A small black and orange creature appeared as the projection gracefully danced up in the confused captain. The alien looked at the creature, attempting to figure out exactly how the small animal would assist in ridding the ship of vermin. Joshua had caught on to the confusion. This is an animal from Earth called a cat. They're extremely effective hunters and should be able to easily catch most of the rodents on board the ship. The captain pondered for a moment. How do they behave? Well, sir, 
They're arrogant assholes, but they do love to cuddle, and they're good at keeping themselves clean. The captain thought for a second. So you want to fix our small animal problem with another small animal? He asked. Yes. Ah, screw it. Why not? And so it was done. After finally landing on a human planet three planets later, Joshua was given all the galactic credits he would need to adopt a cat. He found a kitten just old enough to be on its own. The feline was white and as snowy as Ohioan day, with a small grey patches across its fur. A distinctive owl shaped itself along the nose and the top of her left eye. He bought all the food he'd need for weeks, a litter box and several scratch towers for the cat as well. So, um... What shall we name you? Joshua pondered as he ascended to the boarding ramp of the ship. As he tossed the question around in his head and passed through the airlock, the distinctive hiss of air rushing in antagonizing the kitten, who hissed back to show the shrewd ship who's boss. Joshua stroked her cheek gently with a finger, feeling a soft fur which brought the cat out of its startled annoyance. As the second door opened into the corridor, most of the crew had gathered to witness this strange creature. It was clearly from Earth. The distinctive look of an Earth mammal was famous amidst the ever-curious galaxy. With its dagger-like eyes and long tail that moved like a tentacle, feeding its way through the souls of the damned, the kitten was frighteningly curious about the strange creatures in front of it, maybe more than they were of her. The onlookers cooed and awed at the strange animal. Its pasty white fur blending into milky walls of the craft. It was small for a predator, baby or not, but quiet as Joshua set her down. The cat stood around, looking around the environment before clawing its way up Joshua's leg and back into his arms. After all, the human's arms were proven to be a safe place, unlike the whirring beast that had just hissed at her. Within a few weeks, the animal had begun to grow accustomed to the ship and her crew, she had learned all of the secrets and nooks and crannies. By day three, she had put at least seven dead animals on the desk of the slightly annoyed and relieved captain, who clearly didn't know of the art of the hunt. Milky, as the cat became known, would have to show him. As news spread of this peculiar case and how effective these cats were as pack-bonding creatures for humans and other extremely social sentients, and as pest control officers... The cat became as widespread galactically as they were in human colonies. Freighters used them to keep pests from getting into the food shipments, and colony ships used them to boost morale and to keep the ships clean. As the strange tale of felines rise to galactic dominance continued, one thing became clear to our new feline friends. They had once again conquered all that is known. Cats ruled over... Everything. End of story. Story number two. The Human Touch, written by Rosie013. And you want me to greet the human envoy first? Niopamak paused mid-worker, genuinely confused by his government official's odd request. Why? The weedy little pen pusher squirmed on the spot in discomfort. Unsurprising, really. The sweaty atmosphere of the team's private gym would have hardly have been familiar ground for him. Perhaps you could review the proposal in private, like your team's manager's office, perhaps. Oh, this is my office right here, little one. 
And don't wave your documents in my face either. That's just a formality for the managers. After you tell me when the boys exactly why I'm needed on a diplomatic mission, of all things. The other members of the gym looked around guiltily. Subtlety wasn't a strong suit of any who played the violent contact sport, Glnotsuo. Let alone the members of the running champion team, boys. Trying not to breathe too deeply, the official complied. We are receiving an important human species envoy for trade talks to assist with our current financial crisis. We want to represent our planet with the very best we have. The way his tiny voice rose almost made the last part sound like an accusation, not the declaration it was supposed to be. But this only served to confuse Nypermek even more. Why would an envoy want to meet a sports star? Why was he to meet an envoy first instead of a diplomat? A fan of East, perhaps. He's paused while he thought made the official realize that he had still not gotten through, and continued. We haven't had much contact with the human species through official means, and our research indicates that there is some sort of traditional ritual combat on arrival. You are our best Sir player. You will represent us. Combat? Him? Shouldn't they want a military person for that? Not a sporting star. Maybe the government didn't want to intimidate the envoy. Show strength, but not too much power. It made a certain kind of sense. Well, why not? So long as it didn't delay his training schedule too much. And species representative would look good on his resume. I had better be getting paid well for this. As the pen pusher's smile became a little more genuine. Don't worry. We'll show you what is required. Ambassador Aaron fought a desperate battle of strength and integrity to remain calm and in control, but there was no denying that he was losing. It took all of his willpower not to burst out in laughter. Instead, he managed to surprise it into an unacceptable amused grin. As soon as he was about to explain the handshake to his much smaller hosts, one of their members rushed forward to grapple his arm enthusiastically shaking it in every direction as though trying to rip it from its socket. He was glad that they had their own form of handshake. Many other space-faring races found physical contact as a greeting to be unpleasant oddity. He already knew that he would get along well with the species. Aaron made a note of just how vigorous the greeting was. He wouldn't want to make a social faux pas by being any less enthusiastic when surprising the others with their own greeting. Paying attention to the smaller details, like this, was what really gave his position the human touch. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1452. Story number one. Humbled merchants written by something touches back. We are but humble merchants, the human said as he poured a deep blue liquid from an unlabeled crystal canter in two small cups. Major Zykon raised a proper cup to his lips and savoured its unusual, yet perplexingly familiar taste. Where had he had this before? Major Zykon pondered this as he looked beyond Director Johnson to the view of the human trading complex beyond. Humans had come to his world, Umdar, ten years earlier, and built their trading post in an alpine valley strategically centred at the intersection between three of Omdar's wealthiest governing districts. The trading post itself was built, according to Director Johnson, 
to resemble a pre-industrial alpine village in a place one close called Bavaria, and it was, to Major Zykom's eyes, extraordinarily beautiful. Sadly, the view out the window was marred by a new array of very tall metal grid towers that were holding up an expanding network of horizontal cables covering the entire valley, right up to the ridgetops. The purpose of this new construction was totally lost on the Major. No Amdaran knew exactly how large the human sphere of influence was, or how many planets these humble merchants traded with. But strolling the myriad of shops, the Amdari could find the most extraordinary tools, home appliances, food, and fabrics surely gathered from a large swath of the galaxy. But Major Zykom had to admit that that can't be found in any shop or street or human spacecraft in Amdari space was a lethal weapon. The human police in the trading post used non-lethal weapons, and no other human was armed at all. The director seemed to believe that bringing lethal weapons to Amdari territory would be threatening and a hindrance to free trade. But Major Zykom wasn't here to talk about trade. The Major took another sip of the deep blue liquid and said, As I said before, our scouts indicate a substantial Grandin invasion fleet is thirty days out. If humans do not have resources to help us, then I suggest you evacuate. I cannot guarantee the Amdari will be able to hold off the fleet, and the Grandin are known to collect slaves from conquered worlds. Director Johnson sipped from his cup, refilled both cups, and said, Oh, we have faith in the Amdari. You will keep your planet. More is more than just who has the biggest ships, the strongest weapons, or the most troops after all. More is also about information. More is also about understanding your adversary. Tell me, Major, have you ever met a Grundon? Once, I was part of an expeditionary fleet that ran to Grundon's scouting group near the Zant system. We captured the ship and, uh, that's where I've had this before. This, holding his glass, is Grundon Svetch. Pushing back from the table, Major Zykom said, You humans are trading with the Grundon. Well... Not exactly trading. This particular Svetch was liberated from Admiral Back's personal yacht. Do you know the Admiral Back? He's quite famous in Grund, at least according to the mementos in his cabin. In any case, he's the dude the Grundons picked to head up their invasion fleet. Director Johnson filled their glass again. Major Zykon moved back to the table and took another sip. The already excellent Svetch definitely improving with more Svetch, especially knowing that it had been liberated. Okay, you have my attention. How did you acquire Admiral Back's yacht? What else do you know about the pending invasion? We've had stealth observers around Grunt for, well, uh, let us say uh, a while now. We haven't contacted them yet because they are, as you indicated, somewhat unpleasant to those who are not Grundons. We watched with great interest as they assembled an impressive fleet of combat ships and dropship carriers, and an equally impressive fleet of supply ships. Clearly, they were building for an evasion somewhere. As unpleasant as they are, we are not at war with them and didn't feel it was appropriate to tangle with the combat fleet. So we followed the supply fleet instead. They were following a pattern of making faster-than-light jumps to rendezvous points, getting reorganized, and then jumping to the next rendezvous point. 
at the Munsuch Point, a very nice ship, which turned out to be the General's yacht, developed a particularly hard-to-isolate problem with its FTL drive, and was unable to jump with the rest of the fleet. Mind you, uh, we were but humble merchants, and surely nobody would believe that we could send a robot into the center of fleet formation, remove a critical part, and get back to completely undetected. The missing part must have been of a pure coincidence. I think I would believe you could, said the Major Zyko. Well, then, you have a better imagination than the Grundons. They just left the yacht behind for us to salvage at our leisure. Director Johnson took another sip. It was a good salvage. In addition to the Admiral's personal stash of booze, we also got an inside look at Grundon computing and communications equipment, including all of their encryption methods and keys. The Admiral apparently likes to use his yacht as a command and control center, so it had all the best military stuff. Wonderful, just wonderful. Our people really enjoyed poking through it. Oh, and we've also explored his personal quarters. Do you know the Admiral got his big break when he was a major, just like you? Yes, they were attacking a planet and it was not going well. Then Major Buck came up with an idea of focusing their attack on a single strip mine that was conveniently located near critical cities. You see, the right kinds of strip mines offer a broad hard surface for ships to land, change out their air, and deploy their planetary hardware. This meant that they were able to get on the ground and get organized without having to drop ships all shot up and spread out everywhere. The strategy worked, and Major Back became, eventually, Admiral Buck. He wrote a book of all about it. Director Johnson then reached behind him and brought out the Admiral's textbook on Grundon tactics. Majors can be innovative, but Admirals tend to do what worked before. The Admiral's scout ships will be snooping around next week. Please pretend you don't see it. I'm sure that the Admiral will be delighted. To find a convenient flat strip mine equidistant between all your three largest cities. Major Zycom looked out the window at the ugly towers and cables. Am I to understand that you're covering your entire valley with camouflage net to make it look like flat ground? Well, uh, not net. Also reflectors and radar transponders to fool their altimeters. And, of course... We'll mess with their navigation systems, jam their communications, and assert our own false communications so the first ships don't warn the other ships behind them. Director Johnson smiled, his eyes glistening with pleasure. An entire fleet of warships crashing into our little valley, one after the other. We anticipate making a fortune on salvage. We are, after all, just humble merchants. End of story. Story number two. Rifle Rounds, written by Monarch357. What in the feck is wrong with you? A tall avian going by Kala asked, an expression of utter bewilderment spreading across her face. Hearing about human armaments was astounding enough, but seeing one in person... What? It's only a fifty. Half of the crap in our armory runs off bigger rounds, Alexander retorted. Clearly, on the defensive. Don't you use plasma and laser weaponry? Yes, we do. Uh, for the anti-armor cannons. The bullet is the size of a talon. No matter how much the human explained, Carla would never understand their obsession with almost comically large ballistic ordnance. 
Have you ever seen what a .50 BMG does to a sapient? It's beautiful. Fine, show me then. I want to see what this affront to the gods can do in combat. Alex pulled up videos he recorded of his own experimentation with the Goliath Mark V AMR on his own time. Three shots against three ballistic dummies in three places. By the first clip's end, Carla was slightly red-faced, and by the conclusion of the compilation, she could barely stand upright. So what do you think? Alex asked in an oddly casual tone, seemingly completely unaffected by the gruesome minute and a half recording he so proudly displayed. Carla began a few noises that Alex's translator interpreted as confused, stuttering. He could be heard without its rapid chirping. What in the feck is that rifle? Fecking destroy it before it takes out the building. What? You don't like it? Well, how the feck could you tell? No, I don't fecking like it. Why in the hell did you make me watch that? Hey, this is one of my favorite guns. I thought you'd like it too. That fecking target got turned into gelatin mist. The third one lost its entire head. What the feck do you do against an actual organism? Uh, not much. Just powderizes half of its skeleton on a lucky shot. No big deal. What? Oh, yeah, we used to make fully automatic versions of this. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1453. Story number one, The Final Farewell, written by Space Paladin 15. The last sands in the hourglass of the universe were falling with a grim finality. Time bending life's epilogue, and there was naught we could do but spectate. The multitude of stars that spanned the night sky had vanished long ago, as the universe expansion outspaced the speed of light. Generations were raised in darkness, knowing the heavens only as a cold, empty expanse. Not even our sun remained in the sky. It had gone over long ago. Our artificial habitat was hanging on by a thread, scraping by on the last dregs of recycled energy. My role as gatekeeper was a ceremonial role inherited from my ancestors. Space travel had become a rarity in this era. The energy needed for the hyperdrive was wasteful. So, it came as a surprise when a transmission from an alien ship came through our comms. Hello, old friends. Memories flooded through my neural link, a collective remembrance of sorts. Humans, they called themselves. A type 4 civilization from the planet Earth. I knew why they come. They were here to say goodbye. One last time. We haven't heard from you in a millennia, I transpired back. We thought them unspectacular when we first met them. Humans burst onto the galactic scene with more than usual aspirations of peace and prosperity. They peppered us with curious questions, lapping up knowledge like a sponge. Their eagerness to learn and adapt was commendable but not special. We didn't realize how deep the desire for knowledge burned. Not then, at least. We took them under our wing, soon becoming their closest ally. The Terran Republic made itself a relevant player in a political sphere with ease. The juvenile charm helped them slip under the radar, while they endeared themselves to the powers that be. 
there was a reason nobody invaded them, even as their colonies sat ripe for the taking. Everyone liked the humans. They were so vibrant and full of life. Nobody else could have gotten away with playing all the sides of the Galactic War, except them. Well, you haven't reached out yourself. How are you? Centuries turned to millennia, as they always did. Humans mapped every corner of our galaxy, pushed the boundaries of science, and became an established trading empire. While most species would have been satisfied with that pinnacle of civilization, the humans wanted more. More seemed to be the defining word in their lexicon. There was some impulse that drove them, one of their scientists could never quite identify. It was not their craftiness that helped them ascend, but their stubbornness. Even with FTL travel, the amount of time and effort it would take to explore the universe was staggering. But the humans were not content with our little corner of reality, and pressed ever further into the final frontier. Generations discarded their lives to expansion, knowing full well that they would never see the results of their labor. We miss the old days. We miss our home, I answered. We miss you. The strange humans, where others saw impossibility, they saw a challenge yet unsolved. They were determined to crack the limitations of their physical bodies, to pry the scythe out of the reaper's hands, if need be. They wished to break the material binds that caused such strife, to supply energy on a scale of a star. We watched in amazement as they achieved all their desires and more. Dyson spheres cropped up around stars, accruing energy of a thousand worlds. Anti-aging breakthroughs allowed us to live longer than ever imagined. Medicine rendered disease a thing of the past. The galaxy soared to a utopian era on the backs of human technology. But somehow, they were still not content. These grand accomplishments were not enough. We miss you too. I wish we had more time. More time. What a human thing to say. If they truly missed us, why had they become so distant? By my judgment, it seemed humanity was bored of us. Beyond us, even. We wondered what the humans were searching for, even as they saw the universe crumbling around them. They resented the wombs of times. Those who spoke to them found them bitter and cold. Billions of cycles swept by in a blur, and the solar system succumbed to the years. Earth was a long-gone memory, a shadow of their past. They became a species hardly recognizable as human, quiet and reclusive. They fused their minds with computers, transcending to a level of thought beyond any carbon life form. They stowed away in alternative realities to experience time at a slower rate. It was their way of prolonging the inevitable, packing an eternity into a single second. And despite their best efforts, time caught up to humanity all the same. Why did you leave us, humans? I guess the answer before their reply came through. They were a species that was fundamentally unhappy. No matter what goals they achieved, the satisfaction never lasted. Reality never lived up to the dreams inside their heads. 
We were looking for a purpose. Staring out at the lifeless void of space, I thought I understood. We saw the universe now, as the humans always did, as a futile race against time, where all accomplishments eventually meant nothing. From the beginning, they lived with a constant awareness of their mortality, their pressing knowledge that we were destined to die and be forgotten. That the blip of our universe would be washed out by permanent heat death, entropy, an endless nothing. The humans wanted to be more than nothing. Did you find what you were looking for? It was right in front of us, the entire time. What did that even mean? Why did they speak in riddles? If the humans had discovered the meaning of life, I wanted to know. It was the least they could do, as a final farewell to an old friend. They had to have some solace hidden amidst their existential dread. I don't understand. You don't have to. We know what we must do, what we were destined to create. This time, we'll get it right. End of story. Story number two. Morning, avoid humans. Written by Nick Graydon. Report FCR21S368-0-55. Agent Lee Zentile, Yenma. SSO number 371292. Observational study summary. Special Species Observation Agent 55 was sent to monitor native species in natural habitat prior to galactic contact. As previously noted, this intelligent race had not developed the function to allow psychic or even empathic communication, a first among a species so technologically advanced. Though most of the species is innately able, through training, to adopt some minuscule third cousin to empathic reception, the result of this self-directed empathy as a whole are so negligible as to be considered moot. This is thought to be the reason of their warlike nature, but does not explain the ever-decreasing violence amongst them over the past six to ten millennia. Their records are incomplete and spotty. The reasoning behind the fact that they have not wiped themselves off the face of their planet, like other non-empathic intelligent species after clearing the fourth filter hurdle, is somewhat of a mystery. Given the lack of commonality, advancement into our galactic community is not advised. While that commonality might be reason enough, their propensity for violence is a strong advisor against our involvement as well. Barring those two, the danger why unwittingly posed to the whole of our community is reason enough. The other two reasons notwithstanding, as explained below. Agent 55 was lead agent of 20 others sent to view how humans handled their deceased and uncover any rights used as varying reports had been given. No direct data has been collected, apart from that family and close acquaintances gather in special places for a service before they are entombed, married, or burned. The reason for a lack of data is every attempt by Agent 55 to seek out these rights has resulted in lost consciousness for the observing agents. Reports filed indicate that upon moving close enough to these gathering spots, a massive feeling that can be summarized as void overwhelms them. Others have reported such feelings as agency loss or sorrowful empty disconnection error. 
Agents have also reported similar levels of intense sadness, bitterness, and bewildered directionlessness as well. The fact that these things are felt is not a problem. The fact that they are felt to such a strong degree that it renders the other species unconscious is terrifying. Reports indicate, in general, a week after what we would colloquially refer to as the right of corpse disposal, most individuals are safe to be around by all species as subjects have gained more emotional control, though for other humans it can take months. While other agents have had strong experiences around some of the other emotions during events with humans during desperate projects, nothing has compared to the death and the emotions tied to it. In short, the complete loss of control of their emotional state coupled with the intensity of their emotions around, but especially during, death rites, is a nasty cocktail that is unbelievably dangerous to the galactic community. It is this report's assertion that humans should be avoided at all costs for the sake of public health. We have lost three coagulatile agents from cranial hemorrhaging due to the emotional imprinting during these events. How such a species can survive through such a torrent of devastating emotional carnage is unknown, and a study into it not worth the danger of research. How best to quarantine ourselves or the humans is left up to the Council. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1454 Mutually Assured Destruction Written by Space Paladin 15 Alarms blared in Stellar Command Headquarters, jolting me awake from my first bit of sleep in two days. Alert! Unauthorized movement of Allied ships detected in the Soul Sector. With a groan, I rolled out of bed and tossed on my officer's jacket. What in the name of Zanx were the humans doing? I thought we had impressed upon them the seriousness of the Rancian threat that the last joint briefing. Those insolent bipeds were going to get us killed. The Rancians had launched a nuclear strike against one of our military bases a few days ago, reducing it to little more than a radiated rubble. By the time our sensors had detected their stealth bombers, they were already part in our outer bands of each of our systems. The enemy had gotten within close range of our homeworlds and was demanding our unconditional surrender. If we did not comply, they would deploy their nuclear warheads against our civilian populace. We had looked at every option to counter their threats, but it was as though they had predicted all of them. They warned us that any attempt to evacuate our civilians, approach their vessels, or launch a retaliatory strike would result in them glassing our worlds on the spot. We were given three days to agree to their terms. As much as we despised the Rensians, it seemed we had little choice. It was better to be living a vassal state than an extinct civilization. I had noticed that the Terran generals seemed agitated when we discussed our plans to surrender, but I chalked it up to the shame of defeat. They did not object openly, but whispered amongst themselves and left the base in a hurry. I suppose they just realized that they were outvoted and decided to act on their own without informing us. Why would they do something so rash? Earth was not exempt from the threat of total annihilation. Perhaps that human death before dishonor mantra was more literal than I thought. My hooves clopped against the metallic floor as I navigated through a series of hallways. The fog of exhaustion clouded my mind, 
but I tried to snap myself out of it. Everyone was just as tired as me, and as the ranking officer, I was expected to give the orders. As I entered the bridge, my subordinates were already at their stations, and they saluted at the sight of me. Howdy's! I turned my attention to Chief Intelligence Officer Trowell, who was huddled over his computer monitor. Trowell, report. It appears that the Terrans have mobilized the majority of the fleet. They appear to have outfitted their ships with primitive stealth tech, and they've branched out in several directions. The current trajectories place them on an attack course for the Ranzian homeworld and all six of their colonies, Trowell replied. I paused to consider the information. Now the Ranzians detected them, unlikely Admiral. The stealth tech conceals them from long-range detection, but the Ranzians will likely spot them upon entry into their system, the same way we have, which is from the faint radioactive signatures emanating from the Terran ships. I sucked in a horrified breath as realization dawned on me. Oh my, thanks, help us. That is not their drive signature. Terran military ships, even the more dated models, have been swapped out fusion drives for antimatter drives. The radiation isn't from their warp core. They must have nuclear weapons aboard. Did the humans really think that charging in, glassing the Rensians was going to save the day? It would only guarantee our destruction. Nothing good could come from provoking them. Images of charred ruins and incinerated flesh flashed before my eyes, knowing that would be a reality if the Terrans were allowed to complete their stunt. They had to be stopped at all costs. I linked into the navigation systems from my holopad and plugged the stellar coordinates of the Terrans' routes, attempting to chart an intercept course that would be futile, the computer determined. They had already entered the warp bubbles and would arrive in minutes. Even if we scrambled our fastest ships, they would still have too much of a head start. There had to be some way to buy time. Perhaps we could talk them down, although it did not appear that the Terran military was listening to reason. Anything was worth a shot at this point. I turned to my communications officer. Get them on comms, Link, immediately. Transmit on the Stellar Command emergency frequency. Encar pressed a few buttons, waited for what felt like an eternity, and then frowned. Sir, I'm afraid the human ships are ignoring our hails. I muttered a few curses under my breath, feeling frustration bubble in my chest. There was absolutely nothing that we could do to affect the situation. We were just as powerless to stop the humans as we had been to stop the Rensians. Time slowed to a crawl as we tracked the fleet's progress on our monitors. The Terran ships signified it by small blips on the star chart. I thought about my family. I thought about resigning my post. I wondered if any of us would still be here in an hour. Watching the markers blink across the screen, parsec by parsec, the feeling that I had failed in my duties to my planet and to stellar command weighed heavily upon me. I should have realized what the humans were up to, but how could I have known? Could anyone have known? The white dots briefly flashed red as the Terran fleet reached the Rentian systems, breaking me out of my thoughts. This was simply our surveillance registering that they had dropped to sublight speeds as they would be necessary for missile launch or a precision bombing run. The enemy surely had noted their presence now that they had left hyperspace. I read over the information we had one last time, looking for an angle. 
the number of radioactive signatures we detected was a bit concerning. The humans seemed to have enough warheads in tow to rival the Rensian Empire's entire nuclear arsenal. There had to be a computer error. Stellar Command was well aware that the Terrans had nuclear capabilities, but from the version we had from Earth's history, they had only used them twice in combat. Their nation factions had unified a long time ago, and there had been no detonations other than the occasional tests for many decades. There was no apparent reason why they would have enough nukes to destroy half the galaxy lying around. Then Carl perked up at the listening station. Sir, we've intercepted an outbound communication from the Terran ships. Are they meant for us? I asked, a spark of hope glimmering in my mind. Perhaps we can still talk to them down and smooth things over with the Renzians. No, uh, it appears, um... They're directed at the Renzian command center. It looks like they're establishing a video chat, she replied. I wondered, yet again, what the Terran's play was here. They had showed up armed to the teeth, ignored their allies, and now they wanted to chat with the enemy. The thought crossed my mind that they were trying to switch sides. At least the humans are talking, not going in guns blazing. Put the intercept on screen. I want to hear every word they're saying. A crisply dressed human with close-cropped black hair appeared on the view screen. This is Commander Lucas Novak of the Terran Space Force. We order you to leave any systems occupied by us or our allies at once. His Rensian counterpart clacked its mandibles together, the equivalent of laughter for its species. <laughs> you have some nerve. Now I'll give you that. But if you don't leave at once, we'll make good on our threat. Our nukes are armed and ready. Mine. Do it, the human said with a shrug. But our nukes are ready too. And man, I'd love to see the fires of hell rain down on your world. The second this ship loses contact with Earth, we make sure the people of your empire never see another sunrise, either. That's just stupid, the Renzian shrieked. Nobody wins if we're all dead. Commander Novak seemed unfazed. That's the idea. Mutually assured destruction. The Renzian paused for a moment, considering the situation. I see that we're at an impasse. I suppose that we could agree to a temporary ceasefire. We will withdraw our ships if you'll do the same. Very well. The call was aborted, and I stared at the blank screen in disbelief. Had the Rensians really just agreed to stand down? The humans' entire strategy had been to ignore the threat against their planet and counter it with their own. I needed to speak with them, if nothing else, to understand why they would risk their species' existence. Trow, hail the Terran vessels again, I ordered. This time the humans answered in a matter of seconds. Commander Novak rematerialized on screen, grinning from ear to ear. Your species disobeyed a direct imperative from Stella, I began. Commander Novak's smile grew wider as he interrupted. You're welcome. I couldn't help but smile a little myself. Okay, that all worked out. But what if it didn't? How did you know that I would stand down? That you wouldn't just end up trading nuclear punches? The Rensians are arrogant, but not stupid. Nobody wants to have their entire species wiped off the map. Their entire civilization turned to dust. We just had to make them understand that there would be no winners in such a war. And that's why you have so many nukes. I suppose so. If anyone tries to get off humanity, it's the last thing we do as a species. We'll make sure that we take them with us. 
End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1455 A Rallying Cry, written by Space Paladin 15 Humanity was presumed to be extinct for decades. The Kairul Empire had sought to assimilate Earth into its territories as a part of the expansionist policy. Given the option to surrender or face certain death, it was assumed the humans would choose the former. Their species had not even achieved FTL travel or made previous contact with alien life. What hope would they have in an interstellar war? The Empire gave a demonstration of its might, blasting a human lunar colony to smithereens with a nuclear assault. Whereas such a display of prowess would have evoked fear in the more sensible species, it only garnered outrage on the people of Earth. Just a few hours after the bombing, the United Nations sent out a defiant statement declaring war on the Kairul. The Kairul was stunned at the foolish rejection, but promptly bombarded every bit of land of Earth. They had to make an example of the humans, so that their current subjects wouldn't get any bright ideas. With all Terran cities laid to waste and their planet rendered uninhabitable, victory was declared. No sign of life was picked up on the surface by Kyrule's senses. It seemed that the species had been eradicated. Humanity became a little more than a footnote in the pages of Kyrule history textbooks. They were a lesson in what happened if you defied the Empire's wishes. But for members of the Resistance such as myself, they were symbols, heroes. The ones who had known that they would lose everything and fought back anyways. Direct rebellion would have been suicide. So the resistance operated in the shadows. We would sabotage ships, steal munitions, shipments, and spy on the Empire's offices. I worked as a barkeep on a nebula station, eavesdropping on off-duty conversations and feeding intelligence back to the rebel leadership. There is plenty of time to think in prison. I played my capture in my mind over and over again. It was just like any other time, passing through the checkpoint to the transport hall. But rather than giving me a quick glance over, I was accustomed to. The young inspector was staring at me with suspicion. I tried not to wither under her scrutiny. You travel too often, Nervin. I know you're up to something. On the ground, she barked. Two soldiers threw me roughly to the metal floor. I winced as a sharp pain stabbed through my ribs. They tore off my coat and rummaged through my suitcase. I knew the gig was up if they searched any further, but there was hope that they would stop there. Next thing I knew, my boots were ripped off my feet. I could barely think over the blood rushing in my ears and the pounding of my heart. The inspector pried the folded-up note from the soul, smirking in satisfaction. Well, what is this? A rebel spy. Throw him in a cell and throw away the key. In the first few days of my detention, interrogators dropped by. They demanded information about the resistance, offering slavery rather than death if I gave in. When I refused, they tried to beat the answers out of me. That didn't work either, so they stopped coming altogether. I figured the next person I saw would be the executioner. Between the total isolation, the tight confines, and the foul odor that seeped from the walls, it was enough to drive anyone mad. 
A god only brought food and water once every two days, causing my body to wither along with my mental health. I try to focus on things other than the grim situation, and my thoughts often drifted back to the last intelligence I had gathered, the information the Resistance had never received. A group of soldiers had been discussing the approach of a mysterious fleet of ships. Preliminary scans showed that they were outfitted for battle and of an unknown model. They were larger than any vessels known to the Empire, and they were closing in on Kyrule's space quickly. Hold posts had been placed on high alert. One morning, the sounds of gunfire and explosives shook me awake. It was a relentless bombardment, and from the desperation I heard in the shouts of the Kyrule soldiers, they were losing. I wondered if it was an armada that I'd learned about at the bar. I marveled at their boldness, that they had some audacity to tackle a military station that was armed to the teeth. Judging by the fact that I did not hear the hum of railguns charging, the attackers had knocked out the post's defense in the first strike. The shooting drew nearer by the hour, until it seemed to come from within the walls of the prison. Footsteps thundered down the hall, and without thinking, I called for help as they passed my cell. The door was kicked in, and I squinted for my bright light that poured in. As my eyes adjusted, I got a good look at the attackers for the first time. The appearance of these bipeds jogged a memory deep within my mind. A gasp escaped my lips. Humans! The man who busted the door lowered his rifle. Correct, Sergeant Paul Stewart of the Terran Army. Sergeant Stewart spoke in a heavily accented Kairuli, but his words were understandable. I was shocked by the soldier's identity. This was the same supposedly extinct species that us rebels had immortalized as martyrs. But the humans were here, before my eyes. Perhaps the destruction of Earth was nothing more than propaganda and imperial lies. We were told the humans were wiped out, I said. They thought they killed us all. We don't die that easily, the sergeant narrowed his eyes. You're in a much worse shape than the other prisoners. What are you here for? We're not freeing any murderers or violent criminals. I was a spy for the resistance. We were trying to destroy the Empire from the inside, I replied. Sergeant Stewart laughed, his expression turning much more friendly. Hey, resistance, huh? We didn't know there was such a thing here. Please, come with us. I struggled to my feet, swaying a bit. My atrophied muscles barely held my weight but I managed to find my balance. The human noticed my difficulties, and a glint of pity flashed through his eyes. He wrapped an arm around my side, providing support. I offered him a nod of gratitude as we hobbled down the hallway. Humans are heroes to the Resistance, you know. You inspired us. If you don't mind me asking, how did you survive? We moved as many of our people to underground bunkers as we could before we declared war. We still lost too many. It was just a matter of playing dead. The Kai rule assumed their bombs entered us, but there were survivors. For decades, we have waited, studying your technology, your culture, your language. Once humanity was divided, but now we were working towards a common goal. Our army comes seeking revenge, to pay the Empire in kind for what they did to Earth. I frowned. You wished to destroy the homeworld. Sergeant Stewart shook his head. 
No, we wish to destroy the Empire. We will liberate the oppressed, destroy their military, and topple their dynasty. We will hold them to justice for what they have done, or we will die trying. One last question, Sergeant. Can I join you? I don't see why not. We're always looking to add to our ranks. The humans inch closer to the home world day by day. The rancor fuels them on a march towards destiny. I'm happy to be along for the ride. More members of the resistance flock to our ranks each day. It has fallen upon my shoulders to contact the underground to recruit rebels to the cause. Some insurgents still won't take up arms directly, but they're happy to supply what intelligence they can. After living among the humans for a short while, I've concluded that they are every bit the mythical, larger-than-life figures our stories said they were. Despite everything that has happened to them, they still spouse the values of freedom and equality. They spare civilians, they fight for the common man, and they alleviate suffering where they can. Resistance members will join Terran troops today for our first ground deployment, and I only hope that our courage can match theirs. We've sewn a quote from the human history into our uniforms, translated into Kairuli. It is becoming something of a rally cry. Give me liberty, or give me death. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1456 Story number one. Rejected. Written by Rosie013. The first human that we'd ever worked with was a big shock to the crew. Everyone had heard the stories of how amazing it was to have a human on the ship, of course. The boundless strength and companionship that they provided. And, of course, their strangeness. So our good captain went out and did what captains do. He took a risk and hired a new human crew member. A young male called Michael. We all had our reservations at the rash decision, none more so than me and the cargo handlers, but no one ever consults us about new hires. Naturally, all the rumors of the species' outlandish reputation quickly became betting on how long it would take for the human to do something truly bizarre, something alien. Every species had their quirks, but apparently humans had almost something else entirely. I felt cautiously optimistic with my own bid. A couple of days with a coin for a couple days apiece before the non-typical activity started to show themselves. Not even the captain could have guessed that the new hire would start being human on the very first day. Michael didn't look all that interesting to start with, just barely standard bipedal body layout with mammalian features. He took instruction well and wasn't bothered by any of the other sailors' harsh language that me and the other handlers bandied about to test the new guy, and his impressive strength sped the loading process up quite a bit. It looked like having him around on the same shift would be quite desirable for us, doing us almost a quarter of the total work on his own. With that good first impression, we were away from the dock faster than expected and found ourselves in an uncommon position of having some free time on our hands. A few of the others had hoped Michael would join them in the rec room for a bit to get to know him better, but he declined, saying that he was tired and needed to settle in before the next work assignment. Fine by me. I sure as heck didn't want to miss the opportunity to put my feet up 
There would be plenty of time to get to know the newbie later. The first sign that something was wrong was when Michael didn't show up for midday meal. Different eating cycle, perhaps. After a brief discussion, I got voluntold by the ship's second officer to go and fetch him. It wasn't hard to find. He was in his assigned prayer bunk in the communal quiet room. Dead. He was unresponsive and still, it took all of my composure to remain calm while I called for medical. They couldn't do anything, of course, but this would have to be investigated. And on the first day, no less. I could not think about the poor human while I waited. They would work him too hard. He said the sweat was a sign of hard work, not some sort of injury. We would have never been so rough on him on his first day had we known something like this could have happened. Other humans might have caused all kinds of problems for us and the captain if they thought it was something we did. The ships and duties medical staff arrived and took in the scene with blank faces of experience. There was suddenly no more urgency in their movements now that they would be patient was confirmed beyond help. A stretcher was produced and Michael's remains moved onto it with great care. I couldn't help but flinch at my own failure to help his body made a soft moan of his air escaping his lungs. It was too much. I started a funeral dirge under my breath. Something. I hoped his people did too. As the medics began to carry him away, they ran headfirst into the second officer, whom my shock had forgot to inform. When the dropped stretcher hit the floor, the corpse of the human sat bolt upright, eyes wide open. Everyone screamed. One of the medics bolted out of sight. I'm ashamed to admit, I might have defecated a little. It had taken some time, but everyone eventually calmed down. Enough to hear out the wildest explanation I've ever heard before. Or since. It turned out humans don't worship their gods like we do. Instead of the more normal, regular meditative rest cycle prayers, humans face a cruel gods literally head on. According to Michael, every cycle a human will get themselves killed, usually through a combination of ingesting poisons, dangerous stunts, or in this case, work to death, then lay down to die. If they are worthy, they gained access to the species afterlife. If not, they are rejected, sent back to prove themselves anew, and again, and again, until they are accepted eventually. We were all so stunned at this truly alien concept, none of us questioned it. Not even the captain, when news of the incident reached him. Of course, none of us knew Michael or humans in general enough to recognize the spark in his eyes as he explained this. The medics did the general health checks anyway, baffled that they had somehow overlooked this quirk of nature in the relatively new species. And that's the story of how my best friend Michael was allowed to nap on the job in prayer corner of the quiet room every day for the first four great cycles of our time working together, repeatedly rejected by the gods of hard work. I lost my bet on human strangeness on day zero. We all did. End of story. Story number two. How to make things go fast. Written by much use as such taken. As you know, almost every species comes up with its own method of FTL travel. Except for the Mo, who theorized the evolutions of sapiens, expansionist alien species, and concluded that it was just a matter of time until someone would find them and they could voyage into the stars beyond with minimal effort. 
Anyways, most civilizations break the universal speed limit by somehow changing space around them, be it by creating a wormhole, surfing a gravity gradient, or shunting themselves into an alternate dimension with different constants. Humans, obviously, couldn't be normal and had to one-up everyone else. They invented a device called the FTL Turbine, a form of reactionless propulsion that could reach incredible speeds given enough power. They were content, for a while, zipping around their solar system at almost light speed on what amounted to tin cans built around a set of turbines that spun at nearly relativistic speeds. Then, they had to go faster. Unfortunately, they were riding the very edge of what their material sciences could provide, and going any faster would mean that several dozen sharp pieces of ultra-strong blades would be ripped out of their housing by centrifugal forces. So, they innovated an entirely new field of study. They found a way to rip false carrier particles away from their intended interactions and point them all in the same direction. They broke physical fields to go faster. I'm sure that if the universe were capable of feeling, it would be quaking in the universal boots. This proved to be an amazing discovery, as not only could the humans go faster, but they could also make literal fields of force to protect their ships from impacts, all at a low, low price of possibly going up in flames around a tiny black hole or a sudden nuclear fusion reaction if things ever malfunctioned. Unfortunately, still, they ran into the age-old speed limit of 300,000 kilometers per second, and time dilation began taking place. They were technically going faster, but they were also technically... what? The sensible course of action would be to use their newfound technology to stretch and pinch space in order to cover more distance with the same amount of speed. Humans are not sensible beings. Instead of changing distance in order to maximize their distance over time, they decided it would be better to completely break thermodynamics, conservation of momentum, and several other quantum fields and quantum field-related stuff, and effectively threaten time with a gun and tell it to go faster. They achieved this time compression by pulling a ridiculous amount of energy out of nothing, generating anti-mass and a controlled environment, then using the force of mass being pushed away from it to keep their artificial gravity pointing the right way. Their shields powered and let their spaceships accelerate. This makes their FTL system almost entirely self-sufficient, only taking energy when it has to start. It is yet unknown and hotly debated why it happens, but when a human ship uses the mechanism to forcibly pass light speed in normal space, it only interacts with light and whatever has relative velocity lower than C. My personal guess is that the universe simply doesn't want to deal with their madness anymore, so just ignores their existence when it breaks too many things. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1457 Story number one. We wondered, are they friends? And Earth said, yes. Written by Lone Noble. I declare this cycle session resolved. The assorted representatives may now leave the sanctum. Enjoy your afternoons, everyone. Slowly, the various species picked themselves up from their thrones, hover seats, and platforms, and began to chatter amongst themselves. 
Some were making friendly gestures with their various appendages and discussing new plans. Some were glaring at one another in challenge, and a few species focused on greatest efficiency were already sorting files on their pads and preparing to head to another meeting. Myself, I was beaming over the overseer's chair, glad for the session to be over, and proud of the accomplishments of the day. More food for the refugees of Zerthax, after a great storm had caused a famine on the already fragile desert biomes of the newly founded colony. Increased funding for architecture on developing worlds and essential projects. An accord between Zythans and the Ogrods, bringing the two species closer than ever before with shared migration policy. Oh, and how could I forget the formalized welcome of humanity to the Galactic Consortium? It was all a formality, of course, and we all knew it. Humanity had long since integrated with the rest of us at a pace much faster than any before them had been able to do, impressing the elder races and fledglings alike. We'd be alarmed at the rate of their advancement if it were anyone else, but the peoples of humanity had already proved themselves valuable allies to our governments and close friends to our peoples. I felt my gaze draw to the three human representatives laughing between themselves and some of the Zythans who were about to leave. Typical, I supposed. No human would have let a friend leave after an event like this without a hearty congratulations. Affectionate bunch, they are. Of course, it wasn't always that way for us all. It feels like an eternity now. But it was not so long ago that we had first contact between ourselves and the unified human worlds. It was a time of great upheaval and turmoil. Those contacts were hardly out of the ordinary, of course. It was a large universe, and the consortium was ready to face whatever mystery presented itself next. But humanity had taken longer than most to find its way to our borders. They already had hundreds of colony worlds, and a large fleet normally only associated with warlords and particularly violent species. We were worried there would be a war with a new hostile power, and as we raced to translate the message they sent us, we worked our engineers overtime to manufacture some of our experimental weapons, anything, to give us an edge over the surprise power of the cosmos. Fortunately for everyone involved, the translators worked faster than the engineers, and the humans made clear their intentions of peaceful coexistence long before our new weapons even approached the diplomatic vessel that we had mistaken for a warship. Apparently, humanity had been birthed on a rather violent world, and they'd learned that it was better to be protected and not needed than needed protection and not have it. This horrified the efficiency-oriented species, of course. Such a waste of resources over a non-existent threat but the more cunning and more militaristic species and governments could only find themselves in agreement with our new friends. All of this was, of course, wonderful news. We were glad of the declaration of intentions, but we hadn't survived by being stupid or taking well-armed strangers at their word. We were all very much on edge, even as the humans invited us to send an ambassador to their home world for a diplomatic visit. There was even talk of it being myself as the overseer. But sadly, 
it was decided that I held too much importance to be risked heading to a potentially hostile world. It's a shame. From what the ambassador said of it, I'd have liked to have gone. In the early years of Earth, before humanity had the power of technology, it was an untamed world where a single misstep would kill you. Many of our own strongest members would not have survived there had they originated there. When the ambassador arrived, thankfully, the weather was clear and sunny, the people friendly, if loud, and the temperature moderate enough for many of our species to be quite comfortable. A nice day for a historic moment. The ambassador was already unconcerned. He trusted humanity at their word, which is why he volunteered to go. But the rest of us were unconvinced until he brought back the greatest revelation he'd gotten from his trip. The truly important part of the visit wasn't the assurances of the politicians of Earth, the offers of gifts of resources from the distant colonies to help start up some of our own, the attempt to set up an early migration pact, one we could now get to organizing, now the formalities were passed, thankfully. Nor was the eagerness of the people to meet us. All of them were fantastic signs, but a people can be fickle, and ideologies can turn like an asteroid orbiting a star. What really sold us on humanity's benevolence was the scent. Everywhere the ambassador went, it was absolutely overpowering. Later diplomats concurred with the initial report from our first contact specialist. It was a pleasant aroma that the humans cannot, apparently, pick up. It's a mix of various creatures of the world mocking humanity, both predator and prey. What sold us was a universal agreement between man and animal that they were friends. Humanity was the protector of Earth and the bulwark of nature. Custodian to all life that resides in the cradle world, and though the humans could not notice the way that we could, the world was showing its gratitude. The message was clear. Humanity was decidedly a friend to life beyond its own species, long before they built their own spacecraft. Many of our species considered themselves the protectors of life on their worlds, of course, and we'd seen the phenomenon on a smaller scale. Some of them had annual companions at their sides, and many had large, wonderfully maintained biomes of life on their worlds. But none before had the total unifying agreement from such a variety of life. It did not matter where we were on the world or what creatures were nearby. The scent was there, marked strongly on every human settlement, be it surrounded by jungle, desert, plains, or if it was contained under water. Every creature, whether it flew, swam, or prowled, clearly recognized the special role of their benefactors. It was not uncommon to see humans showing affection to an animal on its lap, or wandering its house, and there was also endless footage dating back nearly a thousand years on the intergalactic network of humans treating wild creatures the same way. From wolves to eels and fish to seals and birds and even insects. The friendship was substantial and beyond anything that we had ever seen. The humans don't understand the significance of the circles, as they become a new shining star in our consortium. They just assume that we're super-friendly alien pals that they've always been waiting for. They never saw our initial paranoia, 
the weapons we'd prepared for a worst case. Few have gone back to see the articles that spoke of war from various media sources. Sometimes, the ignorance of it can be rather amusing to me, as I remember the initial panic. The lovable species who made friends with an entire planet before they reached the stars haven't picked up on the fact that they might be the friendly ones, and we might be the blessed ones to have them. And so, I rose from my chair, and my elation only rose with me. The humans would probably say, I felt like I was floating, and the pun would be entirely intended. But that was the nature of being aquatic and needing an anti-gravity belt to travel land. Humanity now had the potential to become more than they already were, and the universe would change with it. If they could muster half the bravery we'd seen on their network, from firefighters breaking down burning doors to save children within, to doctors charging into war zones to extract wounded men and women, to soldiers sacrificing themselves for others. Well, if they could muster any of that, then we might have to mark them down as our friends too. And the future may be most bright indeed. End of story. Story number two. Mac and Cheese, written by DM of the Tomb. Human James, what are you doing with those food rations? Oh, hey, Plinko. I'm making mac and cheese. What is this mac and cheese you speak of? Is it a mandatory part of the human diet? Did we miss something on the nutrients list? Calm down, calm down. I'm just making it because I felt like a change of food tonight. No need to worry about human James. You are using nearly a week's worth of the ship's rations right now. Are you to tell me that you are going to consume so many calories in a single meal? Well, uh... Yes, human James. No, me James. Yes, no, I'm fecking making mac and cheese and nobody can stop me. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers. <laughs>